talking about healthcare. We can't seem to have a rational conversation in Congress, on TV, or over the dinner table. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. The debate over health care is one of the most bitter divides in America today. But the roots of this flashpoint reach back to the 1950s. Portland, Oregon filmmakers Laurie Simons and Terry Sterenberg explained how national health care was demonized in their documentary, The Healthcare Movie. It's narrated by actor Kiefer Sutherland, whose grandfather introduced national health care to Canada. As fear of communist subversion gripped the country, President Truman appointed Oscar Ewing to head the Federal Security Agency, the precursor to the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. In September 1948, he released The Nation's Health, a report to the president. The report recommended national health insurance. The American Medical Association assessed each of its members $25 and then used the money to hire the public relations firm of Whitaker and Baxter. Clem Whitaker and Leon Baxter were a husband and wife team who had successfully killed a health insurance bill promoted in the state of California. They had one objective, to keep public opinion hostile to national health insurance. Here's what Clem Whitaker said to a reporter about their campaign. All you have to do is give it a bad name and have a devil. America's opposed to socialism, so we're going to name national health insurance socialized medicine. And we've got to have a devil. We first thought of making President Truman the devil, but he's too popular. This man Ewing, he's a perfect devil, and we're going to give him the works. Clem Whitaker spoke to the California Medical Association in June of 1949. Here's what he said. This isn't just a battle to save medicine. This is the most crucial battle that will be fought in our lifetimes. To save America, to turn back the tide of socialism and despotism before it's too late. You can stream the full documentary at thehealthcaremovie.net. It's an excellent examination of the U.S. and Canadian systems. Now let's look at how PR is affecting the debate today. Joining me to discuss why we can't seem to talk about health care in a civil and informed way is Wendell Potter, author of Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider, speaks out on how corporate PR is killing health care and deceiving Americans. Mr. Potter, thanks so much for being with me. My pleasure. So how is corporate PR killing health care? Well, it's killing healthcare because it's corporate, uh, largely. And uh, the the problem that we have, and the reason why it is fundamentally so hard to uh, to move forward with any meaningful change, is because healthcare uh, consumes so much of our economy, and there are very, very there are very, very big corporations that are involved in making a lot of money off of our healthcare system. Whether you're talking health insurance on the one side or health delivery on the other. So it's it's big big business, and no one wants to make less money. Um, so that's that's really at the heart of it. How did we get here? We got here by kind of by accident. It was not planned. Uh, no one uh, in their right mind would uh, would would plan a system like ours, which uh, at the same time is both the most expensive in the world and one of the most inequitable. Uh, uh, in other words, unfair, uh, and um, uh, one that doesn't have 
very good outcomes when you compare it to other developed countries. So we spend a lot and don't get nearly as much for what we spend as uh, any other developed country. So there you are. It's, we got this way because, uh, again, there was no central uh, federal uh, effort uh, that has been successful to uh, really create a, uh, a health care system that really makes a lot of sense. What we did was just let things happen. Uh, health insurance kind of began to evolve uh, in the late 1920s uh, when uh, an executive at a big hospital in Texas decided to try to fill beds at his hospital by uh, offering health insurance locally in the Dallas area. Uh, it was not a bad idea. Uh, in fact, it, his, what he did was so successful that it, that it came to uh, morph into what we know as the Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans. And... Uh, uh, so, but and by the way, those plans in those early days were what is referred to as community rated. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, he uh, that hospital didn't uh, uh, didn't discriminate against anyone because of their age or health status. Uh, in other words, if you had a pre-existing condition, you would pay the same as someone who was healthier, uh, and if you were older, you'd pay the same amount as someone who was younger. And so it was. But a, yet now. Yeah, all that's gone away. Yeah, it went away, and then of course the uh, the Affordable Care Act tried to uh, rein it back in to to make our health care system or health in, the system of health insurance more fair and more rational. Uh, and what we had through Obamacare was uh, modified community rating. Uh, health insurance companies could no longer uh, declare you uninsurable and refuse to sell you coverage because you've been sick in the past, and they couldn't charge older people um, more than three times as much as younger people. That's still not community rating, but it's better than what we had. And you can't, they can't charge women more than men, which was a, a prevalent practice before the Affordable Care Act was passed. Uh, but what we have now in Washington is uh, an effort to try to undo that and to essentially take us back to those, uh, some might say good old days, maybe good old days if, you, if you've been making money off the past. Uh, but not so good for the rest of us. You you sat inside uh, the industry. You were a you were a corporate insider in insurance. Um, you've you've seen the light, and you're outside now writing about it. But what what are the strategies? A corporation is looking at the landscape of healthcare, looking at a landscape of reform, and what are their strategies? How are they approaching this debate? Well, they approach it with one thing uh, in mind at the, at the very top of their uh, of their wish list is making sure that whatever reform happens uh, doesn't affect them in any adverse way uh, financially, in particular, of course. And so they uh, uh, devote millions of dollars in various ways to make sure that uh, their interests are protected whenever there is any discussion, uh, any effort to reform health care at any level of government, uh, whether it's uh, at the federal level, at the state level, or even the local level. Uh, they spend money to influence public opinion, which was work that I was engaged in for 20 years of trying to uh, persuade people to believe things that often were not completely true and in some cases were, um, uh, were false. Uh, 
fake news. And you knew, and you knew they were false. You as a corporation. Yeah. the The thing is, you get involved in this kind of work, and uh, you kind of lose your compass. At least I found that to be the case. Uh, and you tend to think that, well, this may not. You don't even question whether something you're doing is less than honorable, less than uh, factual. Uh, you do it because it helps your team win. Uh, and uh, that becomes the ultimate goal. The thing that you're held accountable for is helping your company uh, achieve Wall Street's financial numbers, uh, their expectations. So you, you reach a point, many people do, of not even questioning whether something is right. And, and, and to tell you the truth, some people don't even know. They don't even have the ability to know that something uh, that their company is doing is not kosher. Uh, Did you? I, I, yes, I ultimately did, uh, and that's why I left. I had a crisis of conscience when I came to realize that what I was being asked to do uh, was was mislead the public, uh, and it really uh, started uh, bothering me when I was uh, asked to be a cheerleader for high deductible plans, uh, plans that uh, have relatively, well, I would say relatively lower premiums than that otherwise might be might be the case because deductibles, your out-of-pocket expenses, are so much higher. The problem with that is that those plans uh, are pretty good if you are young and healthy uh, and have have money. Um, if if any of those don't apply to you, uh, they're not necessarily good for you. Uh, so they're good for but they're good well, for the insurance company. They're very good for the insurance companies because. Uh, they don't have to pay as much for your health care as otherwise would be the case. You're shifting more of the cost of care from them to you. Uh, and, and when I said relatively lower premiums, it's just it's very relative. Uh, premiums have been going up for years and years and years. Certainly we're going up at a rapid clip before Obamacare was passed. Uh, they slowed somewhat, but they still go up. And the reason for that is that insurance companies, uh, number one, they aren't uh, all that uh, capable uh, of controlling health care costs, despite what they've told us. Uh, so one has to question what value do they bring to us. And the second is they don't really care. It's not necessarily to their advantage to control health care costs, because as health care costs go up, what they do is always anticipate what they think the increases are going to be, and then they they uh, hike their premiums to cover that additional amount that they'll have to pay out. So it keeps going up and up and up, and so they take in more revenue. Uh, and if you've got more revenue, you've got more money to work with uh, in terms of converting that to profits. NPR campaigns. We'll come back to that back. in a minute. We need to take a break. I'll be back with Wendell Potter, author of Deadly Spin. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm talking with Wendell Potter, author of Deadly Spin. He's a former insurance company insider who's now talking about how the industry is deceiving Americans. Uh, before the break, uh, Mr. Potter, we were talking about the fact that the insurance companies obviously are building up huge war chests uh, to fight reform. What are the elements of that battle? 
Well, they they spend a lot of money to uh, uh, by hiring big PR firms, and of course they have a an internal PR team that's usually pretty robust as well. Uh, and they spend a lot of money at the trade association level. In fact, a lot of their premium dollars are funneled to uh, the trade associations like uh, uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association and the, the real big one is called America's Health Insurance Plans. Uh, and they, in turn, often funnel the money to organizations like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And they do that to, for some purposes of, of deniability. They don't want to, uh, the public to see that their hands are, are involved in a campaign to uh, persuade them to think and act and vote in certain ways. Um, so it's all done in a very uh, stealth manner for the most part. Uh, but they spend millions and millions of dollars, and they, they use that money to, again, to influence uh, public opinion, to get us to, uh, uh, to believe things that are not necessarily true, uh, and often case are not, cases are not true, uh, but they're usually based on campaigns of, uh, 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 I want to use this term, FUD, and it's uh, F-U-D that stands for Fear, Uncertainty, and Doubt. So the, the PR campaigns that they, they launch are always uh, trying to get us to fear something, to be uncertain about proposed change, uh, to uh, get us to um, doubt that proposed changes will be in our own best interest, in our best interest. Um, so that's why they do it, is to, uh, 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 to uh, influence us. It is, it is propaganda, is exactly what it is, uh, and uh, uh, it's been going on for a long time, and most people are completely unaware of it. And it's very effective. It's extraordinarily effective. I was a part of many campaigns to get people to, to believe things uh, that weren't true. I was part of the effort to defeat the uh, health care reform plan uh, during the early years of the Clinton administration, back in the early 90s. Uh, uh, our, our industry uh, ultimately decided that that plan uh, might uh, hurt profits, so we uh, uh, engaged in a very uh, deception-based campaign to get people to worry about it. Uh, one of the uh, things that the industry produced was a series of TV commercials that uh, uh, featured Harry and Louise, uh, 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 so uh, uh, presumably a married couple sitting around the kitchen table uh, worrying about uh, what might happen if the Clinton plan passed. So the whole reason for that was to get people to question and doubt and worry about the, uh, the Clinton plan. Is there money and organization equivalent on the other side? No, typically there is not. Uh, nothing uh, that's anywhere close uh, to uh, uh, having the, the, the funding that, that you see from industry. Uh, and in that particular campaign I was talking about during the Clinton years, you not only had money from the insurance industry, but you had money from the American Medical Association, the pharmaceutical industry, the uh, medical device manufacturers. Uh, uh, they all joined forces uh, and pooled their, their money uh, to... Uh, to mount a campaign to get people to distrust what was being proposed. Extraordinarily successful. Uh, and the, the people who are advocates for reform uh, just simply don't have anywhere close to the same resources. The only time that we've seen uh, that there was somewhat adequate spending uh, among advocates was uh, 
when Obamacare was passed, there were there were organizations. There was a, uh, one or two organizations that uh, had decent funding uh, from uh, other advocacy organizations and unions and others that that provided funding. Uh, if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have gotten anything passed. Uh, typically, though, there is there is nothing like what we saw. Most uh, uh, most times, the the big corporations don't really have a worthy opponent. We have about a minute left. Um, where do things go from here? Is there hope of reform? There is hope of reform, but it will require a, a more engaged uh, uh, American public, and that's why I have, have launched something called Tarbell. Tarbell.org is a new journalism organization uh, that will seek to to help people understand what's true and what's not about health care and to, uh, uh, in a sense, kind of make amends for all the years that I misled people, which I'm obviously very much ashamed of. Uh, and I think that what we're trying to do with Tarbell is to set the record straight and to help people uh, 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 get critical, uh, credible information about our system. If we don't, uh, we'll never have the kind of reform that we need. Uh, just real briefly, is part of this willful ignorance that people just say it's all too complicated, I'm not going to bother? Much of it is willful 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 ignorance. Uh, you're exactly right. Uh, people just think it's far too complicated, and that, of course, uh, plays into the hands of, of the uh, the big corporations. That they have made our healthcare system incredibly uh, uh, complex and uh, difficult to understand, and that plays to their advantage. And um, also, we're just we're just gullible uh, and and uh, are not using our critical thinking skills like we should. So it's a combination. Thanks so much. Wendell Potter, author of Deadly Spin. I appreciate you being with me. Thank you, Lawrence. My pleasure. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about health care. My guest in this segment is Jane O'Donnell, health policy reporter at USA Today. Jane, thanks for being with me. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with uh, the basics. We, we see the headlines, the incendiary headlines. We see the, uh, the shout fests on cable TV. There in D.C., is there any rational discussion going on behind the scenes? Please tell me yes. Well, um, I, I, I do think there. I, I talk to a lot of people who are very rational, um, who do consult with Congress and, and provide their opinions. It just seems to certainly break down and is so incredibly polarized when it comes to when it gets comes up for a debate when it's being debated. The parties are certainly so divided. Um, the, you know, even within the parties, they, they can't they can't come to an agreement. Uh, and it seems to me a, a lot of that comes from I've, I've covered health care uh, just under four years but I've been a Washington reporter um, my entire career, which started in the 80s. And, and I'm just stunned um, as a, as a fair, fairly newcomer to healthcare about just how polarized it is. I mean, you know, even, you know, when it comes down to the reporters and the advocacy groups, everybody, you know, has been through, you know, had been through such such a, um, a grueling 
grueling uh, lead up to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Many of them had been through the the lead up to Hillary Care. So it, it just it, a lot of times there's there's a lot of resistance. Even to, there was at least a lot of resistance to looking at what the problems were with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, even if you know if you were to write something during the last administration about some of the problems, such as the the high out of pocket costs uh, for people who didn't get subsidies, that was considered a bad thing because it was feeding into the opponents. Um, so now now we have a situation where we're we're um, discussing you know whose fault is it is it is it failing you know is it in a death spiral and spiral and and whose fault is it but nobody's really <laughs> there isn't as much talk about you know geez what is going to happen to these people you know every day I'm now I'm going to be working on you know who's who's going to even who's going to be without an insurer these very basic issues that that affect everyone it's not philosophical for a lot of these people I'm hearing from do, do you ever have members of Congress say, hey, Jane, off the record, Jane, look, let me tell you, don't quote me on this, but this is crazy. You know, if I didn't have all this pressure, I'd do X, Y, or Z, but I just can't face up to the lobby or I can't face up to my constituents or the talk radio host. Uh, you know, I don't because I'm not, we have a, we have a lot of Hill reporters. I mean, I'm based here, uh, our, we're we're headquartered right here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so I'm not having those conversations. I covered um, Capitol Hill for a long time for roll call. Um, so I'm not doing that now, but it is very clear um, to me and, and everybody um, everybody I know that, that you know, for example, the pharmaceutical lobby is, is exerting an extraordinary amount of influence on Congress and, and trying harder to exert even more. So it, it's made it very difficult for any member of Congress, particularly the Republicans, to do much to bring down health care costs, which is the big problem. Why is, why is the cost of insurance going up? Well, people are very sick. There are, you know, there are some very serious social issues underlying health. It really it's only 10 to 15 percent of your health is determined by the medical care you're getting. It's behavioral issues. It's social issues. It's a lack of social services, you know, particularly compared to other countries. Um, and, and there seems to be a, you know, a resistance or just, you know, an, an, an insist, insistence on ignoring those kind of issues and allowing prices to raise to rise. We talked in the first half hour uh, with an author you know about the the role of PR and lobbying. I mean, you're you're seeing this play out on the ground. Is that true? Oh, oh goodness, yes. It just it, it's incredible to me. You know how little, um, how hard it is to get anything done. I mean, some people think that that um, the insurance industry has it easy, but um, it's and and they you know all of the industry players certainly have many lobbyists working on this, but they. Um, it, it does strike me that there's so much money being thrown around right now that it that you know so much of the burden is now hitting the consumer. You know the insurance companies. The the reason we have higher out of pocket costs is because they they can't get, they can't get anything done about drug prices or hospital costs. So they they decide to you know it wasn't until they 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 put put the burden on the consumer and then it's only when we consumers 
raise raise heck hell. <laughs> can I say hell? You could say uh, hell. <laughs> that that you um that you see things like the epi the outrage over the epipen. You know, people had big deductibles, and and all of a sudden said, holy cow, I'm paying this much out of pocket. Why did that happen? So I mean, it's it, it's a tough way to get things done, but that seems to be where it has to happen. It's it's just it's consumer outrage might be might be needed to more consumer outrage outrage might be needed to drive Congress to do anything. As a reporter, do you find yourself saying, you know, I've got to tackle this issue or that issue because people need to understand, like the EpiPen or like mental health? Yes, but the problem is there are so many. It's unbelievable. I mean, I spent um, – there's so much going on right now. It, it's it's kind of like I don't know – there's a lot going on this week with drug prices, and there's a drug hearing, and there, we're talk, there's talk of something happening happening um, at the White House soon. But look what's happening to the exchanges in all the different states. We have a team of reporters uh, at the Gannett Papers around the country um, that I'll be working with uh, to, as we see where you know which insurers are filing rates. You know, because that'll indicate whether they're dropping out or not, or whether they're likely to drop out. Even if they file rates, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stay in it for the long haul. And then what those rates are going to be. So there's that. But you know, mental health and substance abuse coverage is very of great interest to me. And I spent this morning talking to a, an author, uh, Susan Burton, of a new book called Becoming Ms. Burton, about the role of the mental health, addiction, and, and mass incarceration in the African-American community. So there's just so mm-hmm. much. It all ties back to health coverage and health, but <laughs> it's a very broad topic. I don't want to drill into specifics of, of ACA and ACHA, et cetera, but uh, you talked about the exchanges and the problems. Is this issue of, of Obamacare collapsing a self-fulfilling prophecy, or are there dangers out there? Oh, well, there's some some very real dangers. I mean, right now, it, it, I think it's clear. I, I think both sides would say it, and certainly the insurance companies would say it, and they have Anthem and Ohio. That the the big problem is there's no commitment that this administration is going to continue to pay the the cost sharing subsidies, the you know help subsidize people under who make under uh, 250,000, excuse me, 250 percent of the federal poverty level to help them pay their high those high deductibles and their out-of-pocket costs so they can actually afford health care. Without an, an assurance of that, many insurance companies are afraid to keep, are, are very hesitant to keep selling. And that's what Anthem said when they when they left the exchange. I mean, it, certainly there were problems and the rates were going up very high. About 85% of people were protected from those rate increases. But, you know, I've, I've talked to many of the people. I, I hear more from real people than members of Congress, which I have to tell you is kind of a nice thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with all due respect, having been here for so many decades. But, um, but you, know, I, you know, I hear from realtors and other people with their own small businesses. And, and yeah, they were hit pretty hard with these rate increases. But it, it seemed like, it did seem like, it, it you know, there could be fixes rather than, um, you know, throwing out everything, <laughs> that, that it, it could have been fixed. But now it seems to be going in a, you know, in a worse direction. We, we have about a minute and a half. What, what makes you despair? Oh, I, I've, I, um, when I get out and talk to the real people, and, and I've, I've done a, quite a bit of reporting in Appalachia. I've just started something. Um, I co-founded something called the Urban Health Media Project, where I'm working with um, high school students in D.C. and Baltimore to write about the less fortunate in rural areas. And just that's what makes me despair. I mean, there is so much there, and, and it does go back to mental health and the kind of 
kind of stresses and trauma that come from, that stem from poverty and the fact that we're not addressing those issues. Um, it's, it's, it's something, you know, this, this country has the worst, worst health outcomes in the country, excuse me, in the world of all the developed countries. And we have, we pay the most for our health care. And, and the big reason is, you know, is the social services and the other things that, that people need to stay healthy, access to healthy food, to, to safe housing. Those, those are the big issues. And, and, and we're, not, we're not getting them. And we don't seem to be, if we, can, we can't seem to agree on how to address them. So that's what really makes me despair. Getting, getting depressed just listening to you. Ten seconds, anything good out there on the horizon? I see, I see some very um, interesting things going on in communities. Um, the author I interviewed this morning has, you know, has opened, ho- opened safe houses for women leaving prison so they don't go back to prison. Um, there's a lot of really interesting efforts going on in different communities around the country to improve the access to healthy food um, to help people stay in their house- houses. And both parties would agree that, that, that's, that, that the solutions are going to be closer to home. It's just a matter of whether they can happen as fast as um, some, I think the Republicans would say they should happen um, without, you know, continued federal support until, and it has to be sustainable support or or we're going to just delay the problems. We'll be watching Jane O'Donnell of USA Today. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks again. When we come back, we'll talk with a healthcare activist about her fight. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about why we can't talk about health care. We heard from an expert on corporate lobbying in the healthcare debate, a reporter who covers the beat, and with me now to wrap up is someone who's manning the barricades of the fight over health care. Vivian Kieha is an executive with Whole Washington, a group trying to get an initiative on the ballot to bring single-payer health care to the state of Washington. Vivian, thanks for being with me. Thank you. What most frustrates you about the health care wars? Um, I would say the misinformation or the, the uh, selected information that is being um, put out in our media right now. Uh, I can't really call it news. I don't feel like it's news anymore. Um, we have these people that just shout at us on, um, on TV instead of really calmly and methodically showing us the different systems throughout the world that have universal health care. And do you blame the media, or is this the fact that the debate is so polarized? I think it's. Uh, I think that the debate is polarized because partly, um, partly the media, but but also where we find ourselves politically in this nation, we're in a pivot right now, <laughs> um, both in our politics <laughs> and society. Sorry, I didn't didn't mean to step on you there. I said, <laughs> to say the least, we're in a pivot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, and I think this is uh, breaking. We're we're seeing the breaking or the the I would say the the curtain being pulled back on the American mythos and our ideology of rugged individualism. Um, and this is mainly because of the income inequality that is happening, and. Um, it is affecting more and more of our middle class. Uh, it's not just the poor that are having this problem now. It is climbing 
through our our um, our middle class so that people can go and get I mean, lose their homes over one illness where they weren't expecting to anymore. And so this polarization is is a part of all of this. And now we have a big problem again with healthcare. And so, of course, it's going to be a a polarizing um, type of topic. Yet I am seeing people come together on this, which is fascinating. Uh, my Republican friend that I've known for 20 years, and she's argued back and forth with me about this, called me up the other day and said, Vivian, I think we need single-payer health care. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> so so there's, there's little uh, cracks, I would say, in the ice that we are being able to talk about it. But I would say that the media is seems to be more of an arm for um, the corporations <laughs> that want to keep the middleman of the insurance companies in this game. And do you do you find that you can actually sit down with people on the polar opposite of this debate and have a rational conversation? Um, I would say it's difficult, but I have done it. I have more difficulty, to tell you the truth, talking to some of my more conservative liberal friends who are defending the ACA and um, public option, which um, aren't going to be good for the American people. And it's just one more way <laughs> to, to um, stem off a, a huge problem, then we'll just have it again. We really need a single-payer health care system. And we have good ones. We have ones with the VA, we have the Medicare, and we have Medicaid. But these are the people I have the hardest time talking to rather than a libertarian or a uh, Republican. So are we likely to see likely to see rational, calm roundtables on this issue anytime soon? Um, I don't know, but I'm hopeful. I mean, the fact that my my staunch Republican friend called me up the other day and said this really, really gave me a lot of hope. But when regular people get together, we can do this. Um, we can talk about these issues if we respect each other and learn to listen. And on that note, thanks so much. Vivian Kieha of Whole Washington, appreciate you being with me. Thank you, Larry. That wraps up this show. Thanks to my producer, Dave Bourne. Our theme music is by Dutch percussionist Ruben Van Rompuy. This is the last show in this 10-part post-inauguration series examining fault lines in Donald Trump's America. Visit AmericanFaultLines.com for news of future series or specials. All 10 episodes can be downloaded there or for my personal website, Pintac.com, where you can see all my ongoing reporting for Foreign Policy, The Daily Beast, and others, as well as my various books. You can follow me on Twitter at L-P-I-N-T-A-K. I'm Lawrence Pintac. Until next time... Let's try not to create too many more American fault lines. Mm-hmm.